But it's good to be with you. I mean, it always is, but it's a special privilege to be able to look at God's Word together with you this morning. So I'm thankful for the opportunity to do that with you. We've had a, a great summer break, and we've spent some time over the last few weeks this summer exploring each fruit of the Spirit. And this has all been very helpful. It's not only taught us about what the fruits of the Spirit are, but we spent some time looking at the how-to part of the process, which, as I've experienced, it's a key component of our success in growing in these areas. We've been asking questions like, what is the fruit? What are the hindrances that can come up to that particular fruit? How do we cultivate that in our lives? What does it look like? So this serves as a helpful framework for us to follow, and it's been very instructive. You could say that pursuing these fruits should be the habitual practice and daily grind of the Christian life. Right? It's kind of the bread and butter for the believer. And a large theme of the New Testament is our fruitfulness in light of our transformation by Christ's work. And I think the text that I'd like for us to look at today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 will serve as a good, will segue very well into that because Paul's theme heading into that chapter is authentic spiritual growth unto holiness. So if you would, just turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we're going to begin reading in verse 1. We're just going to be looking at the first two verses of chapter 4. To start with here. Paul says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. This section is the Apostle Paul's encouragement to a young church pursuing maturity. And the truths that we're going to look at this morning are basic to the Christian life. So basic, in fact, that you might be wondering why we're covering this again. But I would contend that it's something that we need to be reminded of constantly. Why do I say that? Well, if you've been in the Lord for any length of time, you know that we can tire after running hard for, after holiness for a while. We can reach a place where we think we've arrived in our sanctification. Not that we think we are perfect, but we can reach a place where we become content with where we are. Sort of like we've plateaued. We may be tempted to settle for good enough. We've reached a level of relatively high ground. We've made progress. One reason we may settle is that we feel we've reached a level of growth that we may be satisfied with. But when we do this we can get ourselves into a position where we are on cruise control, kind of a mode of contented coasting along in our spiritual walk. I'm sure you can remember the early days of your Christian walk. We remember the radical transformation that the Lord worked in our lives when He saved us. 
Much of the change in us during this time was rapid, and we often saw a lot of ground covered in those early days because of the clarity of the bright light of the gospel shining in our lives in ways that we had not previously experienced when we were unsaved. This isn't to say that the light isn't still shining, but in those early days there was a lot of activity because it exposed a lot of sin, and we possessed an urgency to get after those things. And perhaps you're sitting here this morning, and perhaps you're still doing very well in these areas today, as was the case with these Thessalonian believers. In fact, I thought of you all when I read this passage because so many of you are excelling in the Lord, which is a tremendous encouragement. You've been transformed by the gospel. You're under the shepherding influence of the word, and you're seeking to obey. Many of you are already doing what you should. And the Apostle Paul would commend you for that, as you hear your shepherds do often. So whether you're currently excelling, or you're content with where you are right now, or you lack the urgency to push forward, we're all susceptible at some point to falling into a mode of maintaining a comfortable speed in our Christian life. There's a danger in us thinking that we don't need further progress in our sanctification. Or we know that we need to grow, but we lack the urgency to stay after it. We wouldn't say that out loud, but we may function like that. Our hearts need to be reminded that we're nowhere near the level of holiness that the Lord desires for us. Paul reminds us in Philippians 3, I'm sure you're familiar with this section, in chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, he says, Not that I've already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 16, However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we've attained. If there was anyone who could have been tempted to settle for good enough, It was perhaps the Thessalonians. They were well taught by Paul and excelling in many areas. How would you feel if you had a letter written to you by the apostle commending you for your spiritual growth, for your godly living? Perhaps you may be tempted to settle for the spiritual status quo. In writing this epistle... Paul wants not only to encourage the Thessalonians for how they're doing, but also to continue on to strive for spiritual excellence. He doesn't want them to settle for the status quo, even though they're doing well. And I think this will be helpful for us, too. So looking at our text again, Paul says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. 
For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. At the outset, we see that Paul says, finally then, or therefore brethren, depending on your translation. This isn't indicating a conclusion here, but rather it's a transition point in the letter. And this shows us that what is about to come next is based on something that Paul has already said. Paul's actually drawing on the previous three chapters of the letter. And it's important that we know what that is because we haven't been in this book. So let's spend just a couple minutes establishing some context for where Paul's been so we can understand at a high level the overall purpose of Paul in in authoring this epistle because it's going to inform how we interpret um, these verses that we're looking at today in chapter 4. So just a little bit of context. Um, We know from Luke's account in Acts 17 that when Paul, he came to Thessalonica with Silas during his second missionary journey. And this was after they were unjustly beaten and jailed in Philippi um, without regard to their Roman citizenship. And um, ultimately they were begged to leave Philippi by the city officials who feared repercussion from Rome for their abuse. That's at the, at the end of Acts chapter 16. So going into Acts 17, Paul t- um, Luke tells us that Paul went into the synagogue in Thessalonica proclaiming Christ to the Jews there and reasoning with them from the scriptures. And the Lord saved a lot of people as a result of Paul's ministry there. Now, the impact of these conversions was pretty significant because it brought up a very hateful and jealous response from the Jewish religious leadership in Thessalonica. They stirred up a mob that attacked and viciously slandered the new believers, essentially accusing them of aiding Paul in plotting civil treason against Rome. So... If you want a full account of that, you can go back on your own and read Acts 17. But essentially, the persecution was so intense that Paul and Silas had to be snuck out via the cover of night by their new Christian brethren. Now, Paul was understandably distressed that he had to leave the church so abruptly and he desired to get back to them at some point. He listened to, to what he says in earlier in the letter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. He says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. His language here of being torn away from them abruptly and his great desire to see them serves as a good background for understanding why Paul wrote the letter. Paul's concern for this young church was so great that he eventually sent Timothy to see how they were doing and spend some time exhorting them, further establishing them in their faith in the face of the intense persecution that they were experiencing. A little later... In chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 5, he tells them, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. 
you can see Paul's passionate love and pastoral disposition towards this young flock. He cares deeply for their well-being. And he wants to see them flourish in the midst of the difficult circumstances that they're in. He knows that they need pastoral encouragement and truth. So in lieu of a physical visit from Paul, he pens this letter to them, offering encouragement and a response after hearing this update from Timothy on how things are going. Paul's very encouraged and thankful at the report he received from Timothy, and the overall tone of this letter is very encouraging. In chapter 1, he thanks God for the evidences of genuine conversion in their lives, reminding them of their election and dramatic spiritual transformation that God brought about in their lives. In chapter 2, Paul details his labor in ministry and faithful discipleship of them. He reminds them of the work of God's word in them. He commends them for their acceptance of the word and their steadfastness in suffering. In chapter 3, once again we see, and this is a theme throughout the letter, but once again Paul expresses his longing to see them. He wants to return to them. So he sends Timothy to them to minister. We also hear about Timothy's good report and the condition of the church. I think verse 10 of chapter 3 really is kind of a purpose statement. It reveals his, his reason for writing the letter. And he tells these Thessalonians that it was his earnest desire to come to them to supply what was lacking in their faith. What was lacking in their faith. And he isn't talking about a fully persuaded trust in God like we saw from Abraham in Romans 4 recently. Instead, when Paul says this, he's referring to their spiritual maturity. He's referring to their spiritual maturity. He means that they still need to keep growing. They need to continue on. The Thessalonians are doing well, but they aren't there yet in their sanctification, and they need to continue to grow in Christ. Paul exhorts them to excel, as as we've been looking at here in verse 1. We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. The usage of this word request shows Paul's gentle and pastoral humility. He entreats them with a request, as you would give a suggestion to an equal. He then says, exhort. Some of your translations, like ESV, will say urge. Either way it comes out, it means to come alongside and encourage. Paul's tone here is very gentle and pastoral, and I think that we can learn from the way Paul approaches them to encourage them on. Further, notice that Paul makes this request in the Lord. He says, in the Lord Jesus. So, this entreaty is backed by Paul's authority as Christ's apostle, but also his love and care for these believers as equals in Christ. MacArthur notes that there is really no reason to be overbearing here because these people were already living in a way that pleased God. The phrase, in the Lord, also confirms that Paul is speaking to believers here. Paul is exhorting believers to continue in their pursuit of spiritual excellence. So with that in mind... 
us as young people are saved by Christ, and it's our goal to excel still more. We all want to do that. So with that goal in mind, this morning, I'd like us to look at um, three essentials to excelling still more. Three essentials to excelling still more. And um, first, it's essential in this pursuit that we have an attitude of dependence. An attitude of dependence. I'll give you a second to write that down. So Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians at the end of chapter 3 serves as a great place to start in our pursuit of excelling still more. Let's flip back briefly to chapter 3 because I think that this is where we get point 1 from. <clears throat> Look at chapter 3 verse 11. This is this is Paul's prayer. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. You can see once again he he wants to return to them. Verse 12, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. In these verses, Paul is modeling for us a humble and complete dependence in his prayer on their behalf because he's asking the Lord to increase their love and establishing their hearts in holiness. Now, we know that striving is a key component to our sanctification. We hear that frequently. Clay is very faithful to remind us to strive. We know that we should stay after it in this area. But while striving is definitely a key component to the process in our sanctification, Paul reminds us in, in this prayer that it's ultimately the Lord who is the author and perfecter of our faith. We are utterly dependent on Him to produce fruit in our lives. And Paul knows that a hindrance to further growth in Christ is a dependence on ourselves. This is a helpful reminder to us because we are often tempted to depend on ourselves. So often. And when I'm doing this, when I see this come up in my own life, it manifests in the form of prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. And we all do this sometimes. We get busy in our day-to-day lives. We lack the discipline to be faithful in this area, especially as young people. We have to make this a priority, though, And even when we're doing this, our hearts can start to lean on our own understanding and strength in our day-to-day. When we aren't communing with the Lord in prayer and instead relying on our own understanding and strength, it's impossible to excel. It's impossible. So how do we help our hearts in this area? How do we cultivate an attitude of dependence on the Lord. So I think Paul shows us this in how he waits the instructional section of the letter with the previous three chapters. 
Now, we don't have time to look at everything he said up to this point, but one instructive thing Paul does in chapter 1 is he reminds the Thessalonians of their salvation. Their salvation. Like the Thessalonians, we were rebellious idol worshipers who hated God, living for ourselves without reference to the truth, on a collision course with God's wrath. But Christ mercifully moved in towards us and redeemed us from that. And he did that through the power of his gospel, making us imitators of Christ, as Paul tells them in chapter 1, verses 2 through 6. Paul wants us to remember that our salvation, he wants us to remember our salvation when we're tempted to depend on ourselves. He wants us to remember who we were pre-Christ and who we are now that we didn't have any hope in ourselves, but now our forgiveness from sin is secured and the grace of Christ has been lavishly bestowed on us. We've been made to know God and we have a personal knowledge of the Son through the Word coming to us so that we can now imitate Him. Paul uses that language in chapter 1. Verse 6. We have to keep this in the forefront, and I I think that's why that's one of the first things that Paul brings up, is because when our hearts forget this truth is when we start struggling with self-sufficiency. In depending on the Lord, we must ask Him for His help in prayer, as Paul does at the end of chapter 3. You all will remember this as we learned from the Apostle John last semester that as God's children, we have our Father's ear. We have our Father's ear, and if we ask for anything according to His will, He hears us. We can pray confidently for our growth and for the growth of others because we know that that is His will for us. We know that it's His will, and Paul is doing just that when he prays for the Thessalonians at the end of chapter 3. So Paul clearly depends on the Lord for spiritual growth, and so should we. But if we're going to excel still more, our eyes have to be joyfully fixed on the God who promised to change us. As important as that is, that's not the only essential. Paul also says it's essential that we remember the expectations that the Lord has for us as his children. And that brings us to the second essential in excelling still more, which is an expectation of obedience. An expectation of obedience. Look at um, the second half of verse 1. That as you received... Instruction from us as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk that you excel still more. There are three things that I want us to notice quickly here in the second half of verse 1. First, he reminds them that he's already given them instruction for how they should walk and please the Lord. Second, he affirms that they're already walking this way. And third, 
he exhorts them to excel still more. Dr. Matt Wehmeyer helpfully synthesizes what Paul's saying here. Paul is saying, you know these truths, but it's necessary for me to repeat them to you. He wants them to remember the doctrine that he's already taught them concerning how they ought to be living. And he wants them to recall the Lord's expectation for them. He says we ought to walk and please God. We ought to walk and please God. And this phrase, to please God, doesn't mean that God's approval of us is contingent on us living a certain way. We aren't obeying because it gains us a better standing with God. We know from the scriptures that God's love is not conditional. If it was, we would have no means to come to him on our own. In fact, if our standing before God was dependent on our ability, we would have no hope. In fact, pre-Christ, we didn't have any hope, and we were completely unable to please God and do his will. And we didn't want to. We hated God, and we lived to please ourselves, doing our own will and serving the idols of our hearts. But as Paul has already reminded the Thessalonians, we come by the way of the cross. We stand justified. We are declared righteous by the person and work of Jesus Christ. By making us alive in Him, we are now enabled by our new nature to live in a way that's pleasing to Him. As we've been seeing recently in our main corporate gathering during our Roman study, We've seen from the example of Abraham that we serve God not for salvation. He has secured salvation for us via Christ's work, and we serve him now in worship. God declared Abraham righteous by faith, and Abraham's obedience through faith was not the grounds for his justification, but the channel through which it is received. Pastor Farrell showed us that that's a gift. It's a gift. And I want us to understand that Paul's not saying that our judicial standing before God is contingent on our ability to appease God's wrath. Christ did that for us. Now, we won't become objects of his judgment for failure. But we are now enabled to obey by his power. We not only want to please him, but He helps us obey to please Him. This is our moral obligation in walking how we ought to walk. So, while we aren't saved by our good works, we're obligated to live holy lives. The Scriptures are replete with teaching on this, as you know. Colossians 3 is a great text to look at for this. If you want to turn there, you can. But you don't have to. Colossians chapter 3. In verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, 
and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you once walked also when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. Since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. This is Christ's goal for us, that we would excel still more in our pursuit of holiness. He's redeemed us from our flesh that we were previously dead in. And he's actively renewing us according to his image. And our sure hope is that he will ultimately purify us to be like himself. Notice the language of verse 10 in Colossians 3. We're being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of Christ. This reminds me of another sweet truth that we learned from the Apostle John in our 1 John study. In 1 John 3, verse 1, he says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on this, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. If you remember that message when Pastor Clay preached that, this is profound motivation for us to live habitually in a way that's pleasing to Christ. So we know that our Lord's expectation for us is that we obey. But how do we remain faithful in pursuing our moral obligation? That brings us to our third essential for excelling still more. The third essential is a practice of meditation. A practice of meditation. This means a consistent meditation on His Word. This is already inferred from what Paul has said in verse 1 when he mentions the instructions that they received from him. But he repeats it again here. Look at verse 2. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Commandments are strong, authoritative directives. And here, Paul wants these believers to know that they're from the Lord. They're from the Lord. It was by the authority of the Lord that Paul ministered to them. And he wants them to remember the authoritative commands of our Savior. He tells the Philippians in chapter 3 that writing the same things again to them is no trouble for him. 
It's a safeguard. It's a safeguard. We need to frequently recall the truth that we know by renewing our minds with the Scriptures. We need the commands and the motivations to be in the forefront of our minds to spur us on and keep us holy. Repetition of truth is a safeguard for us, and Paul knows we need to hear the same things again because a clear understanding of the Scriptures challenges our thinking. It overcomes the deceit that creeps in by the light of the truth and reminds us of the glory that we're moving towards. In our striving to please and glorify Christ, we need the Scriptures to instruct in what we're ignorant of and remind us of the truth that we already know. We need to hear the shepherd's authoritative and loving commands. It's essential in helping us identify and confess sin and continually trust him. The scriptures show us how we ought to walk to please God. MacArthur said when we do this, it progressively elevates us to increasing in Christ-likeness. We know that as we walk in obedience, we will continually become more like Christ. I just want to remind us that this does not happen in a vacuum. It's not instantaneous. We have to continually revisit these essentials to moor us to the truth. As we do this, it's important for us to remember that it's a process. It's a process and a lifelong commitment. You're going to fail at times. You're going to get hindered and distracted somewhere along the way. But the Lord is faithful to help you. I know many of you here this morning are excelling on the Lord, and praise God for that. My encouragement to you is excel, excel still more in that. Excel still more in that. Don't let up in your striving. Don't let your urgency wane. Stick with these basic essentials that will ensure you continue on. While many of you are excelling, no doubt some of you here this morning are struggling in staying after it in this area. Maybe you're caught up in sin and you feel like you can't excel. You know your growth is hindered by besetting sin. My exhortation to you this morning is to not remain there. Don't remain there. The voice of the shepherd is calling you back to get you on the path again. As Clay just shared with us last week, there is a path to restoration. There is hope in the fact that Christ is ready and willing to help you be restored. And you can become useful in his church. Clay quoted to us last week, we've become very familiar as a group with this. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can come to him, confess, 
and he forgives us. So for those of you who are excelling, you can help your brothers and sisters in this area as we saw last week in Galatians 6. You have a vital role to play and your faithfulness can be used by God in their sanctification. You can encourage and you can help these people on the path to restoration. The Lord is faithful and He will bring us to completion in Him. He's promised to do that. He's promised to do that. And my prayer for all of us is that we would continue on in growth. Continue on in growth and pursue authentic holiness. I think Paul's conclusion of this epistle is a good place to end here. Flip over to chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 5. Let's look at verse 23. Paul's closing comments. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. So three essentials. Three essentials to excelling still more. An attitude of dependence, an expectation of obedience, in a practice of meditation. All essential steps to ensuring that we continue on in excelling still more. Let's pray.